Well, in our study through the Bible, we just finished looking at the life of King David and the life of his son Solomon. And so the next thing that happens in that timeline is that the kingdom of Israel is split in two, and this begins uh, just a really bad journey for the people of Israel. It's a very bad, uh, many, many decades uh, in, in the life of Israel. But I want to throw a bit of a curve at you this morning, because even though that is the next thing in the Bible, we finished up in 1 Kings 11 last time, sort of the end of the life of Solomon. The next thing that happens in 1 Kings 12 is that the, the, the beginnings of the kingdom falling apart and dividing. Uh, however, it's going to be several weeks before we get to any of that. And here's why. Because as we go through the Bible together, it's my desire to, the, the best that I can, to teach the Bible in chronological order rather than just teaching them in the order that the books appear in the Bible. Now you see, the, the, the timelines of many books in the Bible actually overlap. For instance, if you go to the New Testament, you look at the book of Acts, and then after that you have all of Paul's letters, his life and his ministry, his missionary trips. But the events in Paul's letters didn't take place after the book of Acts. You can sort of lift all of Paul's letters out, bring them over and lay them on top of the book of Acts. That's when they actually occurred. Now, I don't know how I'm going to figure teaching that out when we get to Acts in about 47 years, but <laughs> I'll work that out later. And so the problem is, you know, when you're, when you're putting all these books in printed form, it, you can't stack one on top of the other. You have to just put them in kind of in a line. But what that can do is it can cause some confusion in when the events in those books actually happened. So the 66 books of the Bible are laid out in, I think, as much a chronological order as you, you could do in a, in a printed form. But in order for the Bible to really come together for us and for us to connect the dots and, and link um, different events and people together, I want to try and um, pull in the books and overlay them as much as I can. So since we just finished looking at the life of David and the life of Solomon, while that's still fresh in our mind, I want to pause for just a few weeks, and I want to look at the writings that those two men left for us. You know, we're not too far out from when we looked at David in First and Second Samuel, and we remember all the stuff that he went through, you know, the good, the bad, King Saul chasing him and trying to kill him. Well, David's writings in the Psalms, many of them came out of that period. And so I think it's good for us to connect that. And so today, we're going to begin with the book of Psalms. Because even though several authors contributed to the book of Psalms, uh, it was David who wrote more Psalms than anyone else by far. In fact, if, if I were to ask any of you, I'm sure, who comes to mind when you think of the book of Psalms? 99 out of 100 people would immediately say David. So today, we're going to look at the book of Psalms, the entire book of Psalms. Did y'all bring a snack? <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not going to be long. We're going to look at the book of Psalms today, and then in the coming weeks, God willing, we're going to look at the writings of Solomon, which are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, 
and Song of Solomon. So that's what we're going to do for the next few weeks, and then we'll come right back to First Kings, end of First Kings chapter 11 and 12, and we'll pick up from there. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, I, I do want to say, before anybody has a coronary, thinking we're going to teach through Psalms today, my goal is not to teach through all the details of every psalm. We could literally do an entire series on just the book of Psalms, because there are 150 of them. We could easily spend months just going through them all. But instead, what I want to do today is it's going to be kind of a triple gainer, double back somersault, flip off the high dive with no splash. Uh, that's, that's what I'm attempting today. I think now that I'm standing up here, I think I'm crazy for trying this. But what I want to do today is I, I want to try to really just convey the overall purpose of the Psalms and what impact they can and should have on our daily lives. You know, if I can help you see what the Psalms are for and how to use them, then I, I think you'll be able to read them and understand them and apply them in a whole different way. So my goal today is this. Let's imagine that you've been invited into a very special room that is filled with exquisite and rare and priceless treasures. Well, rather than me going over the details of all those amazing items in that entire room, my desire this morning is simply to give you the key to that room so that you can go into that room anytime that you want to and explore all the beautiful things that are inside. I've noticed something over the years uh, with us believers, that is that the book of Psalms is very often viewed as kind of a box of band-aids. You know, it's the thing that you only run to when you're hurt or sad or lonely or afraid. And of course, the Psalms are very comforting for those moments in life. But the Psalms, folks, are much, much, much more than that. In fact, the Psalms were very precious to Jesus. He saw them as playing a critical, vital role in his authenticity as the Messiah. Remember when Jesus was walking along the road to Emmaus with the two disciples, and they were talking about everything that had happened, and, you know, wondering, man, is Jesus dead? Is he alive? Was he, was he the real deal? Was he not? This is what Jesus said to them. And by the way, I don't, I don't have slides today because I knew I've just got way too many verses, and I'm watching the time, and depending on how the time goes, I'm going to have to jump around and maybe skip some things. So we have two folks running slides back there, one for the auditorium, one for the live stream, and uh, I didn't want to put that burden on them to try to keep up today. So uh, we'll do it old school, right? So here's what Jesus said to them on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24:44. He said this, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. It's so easily missed there in Luke. The Psalms. He ties them right in there with the prophets and the law of Moses. And we'll see in a moment just how important the Psalms really were to Jesus. So if the Psalms are that important, not just to the entire nation of Israel 
as we'll see. But to Jesus himself, and I think we do well to understand why they're so meaningful, but to, but to understand that in a way that goes far beyond them being kind of a, a warm blankie on a cold, miserable, rainy night of life. The Psalms are much, much more than that. But before we get into that, I want to take just a few minutes. I want to uh, look at some of the unique technical aspects of the Psalms. I don't really know how to word that, but just some of the, uh, some of the makeup of how the Psalms are constructed. Most people aren't interested in this stuff, so I won't spend a great deal of time on this, but I think it is helpful to at least know if no one has ever told you this before. As you browse through the 150 Psalms, it can easily look like they've just kind of been thrown together in, you know, random order. But in fact, the Psalms are organized and they're grouped in a very specific, um, very intentional, very meaningful way. In the Psalms, within the book of Psalms in your Bible, you actually have five separate books. And a lot of your Bibles will show you these headings. They'll show you the divisions of these five books. And again, if you're taking notes, you, you won't be able to keep up and write all this down, but you can get it on the, on the uh, website later. Book one is Psalms 1 through 41. Book two is Psalms 42 to 72. Book three is Psalms 73 to 89. Book four is Psalm 90 to 106. And book five is Psalm 107 to 150. But let's, let's back up one step and let's begin with, with the simplest thing at the simplest place. What does the word Psalms even mean? So you look at the Greek definition uh, for the word Psalms, it means songs. You look at the Hebrew definition for the word Psalms, it means praises. So I think that gives us a, a pretty good picture, overview of what this book consists of. The book of Psalms was used, and, and still is, uh, by the Jews as a hymn book. Remember the days when we had hymn books in, in church? Yep. The Psalms were the Jews' hymn book. These Psalms were written to music, which has long been lost. We don't have that, but, but they, uh, they would sing the Psalms as part of their public worship uh, in the nation of Israel. And the Psalms are also a guide for individual worship for the believer. But here's what I want to say. The Psalms are far more than just a guide for worship. The Psalms teach us how our attitudes and emotions ought to be shaped by the very praise and worship that the Psalms call us to. Now, let me say that again. The Psalms teach us how our emotions and attitudes ought to be shaped by the very praise and worship that the Psalms call us to. And we'll explore that shortly. That's really where I want to focus this morning. Perhaps more than any other book in the Bible, Psalms have um, dozens of unique, I don't know what you call them, maybe just structural features about them that we could spend hours talking about. And I'm sure you would line up to hear that because it's uh, riveting stuff. I'm a bit of a nerd, so I, I like that kind of stuff. But it's not only in the way those five sections that I told you about are laid out in the book of Psalms, 
And again, we could talk forever about that, how book one in the Psalms correlates with Genesis. Book two correlates with Exodus. Book three correlates with Leviticus and so on. It's kind of a match to the Torah, to the first five books in the Bible. But also, it's not just the, the uniqueness of the book of Psalms as a whole, but there's a, there's a uniqueness inside of each individual psalm. The grammar that is used, the unique literary styles, the metaphors, the symbolism, it's filled with that. You know, God is my rock. God is my strong tower. It's filled with that kind of language. There are also things in the Psalms, uh, unique writing style where the first verse and the last verse match. And then you move in, those two verses match. You move all the way into the very center verse. And it makes this beautiful uh, story in the Psalms. It's one of the things that I think convinces me, one of the small things that convinces me, man didn't write this. It's inspired by God. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't come up with that on my best day. There are psalms of praise. There are psalms of, of grief and lament. There are psalms of distress, of confession, forgiveness. There are personal, private psalms, just kind of like David's diary. But then there are also corporate national psalms that were written for the nation. Psalms cover every possible human emotion that you and I, I think, could ever deal with in life. And they help us understand how to deal with those emotions in light of who God is and what he has done. And that's why I think the book of Psalms is near and dear to so many people. It's just so personal. It's so, um, it's so raw in its honesty. You read some of the things David said to God, and you're like, whoo, brother, I don't know if I just said that. But the truth is we all have moments in life. Maybe we don't verbalize it, but we think some stuff, don't we? It's like, whoo, God, I don't know what you're doing, but this is a mess right now. So David was just very honest in his writings about that, and I, I think that's why Psalms is so precious to so many people. Well, in, in addition to all that, the book of Psalms has a number of other unique characteristics. Psalms contains more chapters than any other book in the Bible. Uh, Psalms contains the shortest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 117. It also contains the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. In fact, Psalm 119 is larger than 30 other books in the Bible, just that one chapter. Psalms is the most quoted Old Testament book quoted in the New Testament, the most, uh, by far. 97 different Psalms are quoted in 23 of the 27 New Testament books, 97 Psalms. In fact, I told you earlier, the Psalms were very precious to Jesus. Jesus himself quoted more from the Psalms than he did from any other book. Now that ought to, that ought to uh, kind of perk our ears up there. That ought to say something to us. That Jesus looked at the Psalms as not just some guy's clever writings, but as the inspired scriptures, as he said in the New Testament, the scriptures. And the Psalms show us some amazing things that point to Jesus. And you can pursue a lot of these on your own. I'll just touch on a few quickly. 
It's Jesus who is the good shepherd in Psalm 23. That's who that's talking about. Jesus is all through the Psalms. He's the shepherd who restores our soul and leads us in paths of righteousness. Jesus is the begotten son in Psalm 2, who has the nations as his inheritance and the earth as his possession. Psalm 118 tells us that Jesus was the stone that the builders rejected, who would later become the cornerstone, the chief stone, the one around which and upon which everything else was aligned and built. Psalm 41 prophesies how Jesus would be betrayed by a close friend. The sufferings of Jesus are written in excruciating detail in Psalm 22. If you've never taken Psalm 22 in, do it sometime. I can't read it without a lump in my throat. And it's Psalm 22 that's talking about the horrifying death of Jesus on the cross and the glory that would follow. Psalms 16, Psalm 49, and Psalm 86 predict his resurrection. It says that his body will not stay in the ground and see decay. Psalm 68 talks about his ascension on high. Psalm 110 says that Jesus is the one who is seated at the right hand of God until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And on and on we could go. You see Jesus throughout the Psalms. So clearly what we see, and I'm just trying to give you an overview, is in the Psalms we see a book that is not just a dusty old relic to put on a shelf. It's not just a break glass in case of emergency kind of book. It is that, and it's very helpful for that. But I want us to see the Psalms as so, so much more than that. Um, the Psalms are intended to be tightly interwoven into the, the lives and worship and prayers and thoughts and attitudes and decisions of New Testament believers. There are tons of topics covered in the Psalms. But the central theme, and here we're coming down to, to the main focus that I want to spend just our last little bit of time on. The central theme of the book of Psalms, if you take all 150 and you look at them all, you weigh them all, you consider what they're pointing us to, the central theme in the book of Psalms is the priority and the power of worship. The priority and the power of worship. The Psalms remind us again and again and again that God is worthy of praise and worship solely because of his majesty. Listen, if God had never done a single thing for us, we would still be obligated, and I mean that in the best way, to spend our lives worshiping him. We mustn't have the kind of faith that says, well, God didn't give me that house I wanted or that promotion I wanted, so you, know, you stay ticked off at God. Seriously? No, come on. That's shallow, that's shallow Christianity. That's nonsense. We've got to grow beyond that. And we must come to the place, we must ask God to bring us to the place where, listen, if God never blesses us again for the rest of our lives, we will still praise him and worship him every day. Why? Because he is worthy. He's worthy. And the Psalms bring this out so beautifully. Here's one example in Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. David writes these words. He says, now, this is key, again, to what we're focusing on. He says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In other words, everything in it, 
the world and all those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Those verses remind us that everything and everyone belong to God. Why? Because he created it all. We go back to to Genesis. I keep telling you, the first few chapters of, um, of Genesis are critical. They play a role throughout the rest of the Bible because it's there that God establishes his lordship and kingship and ownership and rulership over everything and everyone. And if we lose sight of that order, we'll find ourselves sitting on the throne at some point. So these verses remind us, hey man, everything and everyone, including you and me, it all belongs to God. Not just he's, because he's some big bully who you know, shoved his way to the front. He created it all. He owns it all. He's Lord of it all. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. And so the Psalms teach us that God is the one who made everything, who rules over everything, and so he deserves our praise and our worship. But the Psalms go further than that. They actually show us how to worship him. It's not enough to say to somebody, hey, you should be worshiping God. Okay, uh, how? How do I do that? Do I bang a drum? Do I wear special clothes? What What do I do? The Psalms show us, they teach us how to worship God. And here's a key. They remind us that we are called to worship God regardless of our circumstances. You're like, ah, did you have to bring that up? It's true. If there's one thing we can take from the Psalms to help us tomorrow on the job that drives us crazy or with difficult family relationships or whatever it might be, it's this. God has called us to worship him regardless of our circumstances. We learn first of all that it's through the vehicle of praise and worship that God receives the glory that is due him, but we also learn that it's through the vehicle of praise and worship. Don't miss this. It's through the vehicle of praise and worship that our hearts are aligned and remain aligned with his. So let me say it again for emphasis and clarity. The central theme of the book of Psalms is the priority and power of worship. Now, when most people think about worship, I don't think the words priority or power come to mind. I just don't think they do. You ask people, what's worship? Most people will say, well, duh, that's the time in the service when we sing. Well, technically that's true, but that is a very limited view of worship. And that kind of narrow view causes us to miss out on the profound personal impact that worship itself can have in our lives. See, listen, I don't want to word this wrong, but I think you'll understand what I'm saying. Worship doesn't just bless God. Worship blesses us. And I'm I'm not talking about, oh, God, bless me, give me a new Ferrari, although I pray that every day. But I... (laughs) One of these days, man, I'm going to rock up in in a Ferrari. Yeah, I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. But listen, I think, I think as American Christians, we have 
We have not been taught the full priority and power of worship in our lives. And we're missing out. We're missing out. Worship itself resets and and realigns, if you will, our thoughts, our attitudes, our desires, our emotions, so that we can see and navigate life more clearly, so that we can live lives that reflect and honor the character of God. So let me, let me try to unpack this quickly for us. How long have I got? Two and a half hours left? All right. So we've already seen that God created everything and everyone. And because of that, he alone is Lord and ruler and master over everything and everyone. But here's something interesting that a lot of people have also never been taught. God isn't a, um, a dictatorial, selfish ruler. In fact, when we look back at God's original design and purpose for us, his desire was to share his rule with us. It's an extraordinary thought. Like if I was king, I'd be like, no, this is my throne. You know, God says, no, no, I created you to share my rule over the earth. And he designed us to share that rule with him as, as we live in submission to him. But of course, sin came into the picture and ruined everything. Sin came in, it destroyed our ability to to really fulfill that rulership role under God. And also, because of sin, a multitude of enemies of God flooded in to this world, and they constantly strive to gain control and to usurp the throne and take rulership in our lives. So we all live day in and day out bombarded by these enemies. I don't have to tell you about that. You know if you're following Christ. And this unceasing battle against sin and Satan and and the world brings us pain and heartache and loss and confusion and fear. And those very things are the things that David wrote about in so many of his psalms. It wasn't just all, oh, God, you're wonderful, you're high above all, we praise you, you're the best. No, you read the psalms, man, it's, it's where worship and pain connect. And it's a powerful intersection if we can ever get hold of that or let it get hold of us. David, over and over again, expressed how perplexed and discouraged he was by all the battles of life. And even times when he felt cut off from God, even times when he felt God had abandoned him, he expressed all of that in the Psalms. And sometimes those thoughts of pain and struggle and doubt and disappointment consumed his Psalms. It's not just like a line here or there. Here's where I'm going to skip some stuff. Let me just give you some some examples. And there are so many of these. Psalm 59, David writing, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise against me. Deliver me from workers of iniquity and save me from men of bloodshed. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me. For no transgression or no sin of my own, Lord. For no fault of my own, they move swiftly to attack me. Psalm 64, Hear my voice, O God, in my prayer. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Hide me from the scheming of the wicked, from the mob of workers of iniquity who sharpen their tongues like swords and aim their bitter words like arrows. Hmm. Ever been there? Of course we have. 
Psalm 94, 16, who will rise up for me against the wicked? Who will stand for me against the workers of iniquity? Let's see. Psalm 31, 10, my life is consumed with grief and my years with groaning. My iniquity has drained my strength and my bones are wasting away. Psalm 6, 2, be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am frail. Hear me, O Lord, for my bones are in agony. You ever use that phrase? It just hurts to the bone. That's where David was. Psalm 13, 2, how long must I wrestle in my soul with sorrow in my heart each day? We've been there too, haven't we? Psalm 38, 8, I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. My heart pounds. My strength fails. And even the light of my eyes have faded. Listen, I could go on and on. The point is, what we see in the Psalms are the experiences of life that are common to all of us. But what you'll find as you read further into these Psalms is really the beautiful part. And I'm going to let you pursue that and discover that on your own. What you'll find is, as you read past those words of pain, as you read past those words of fear and loss and suffering and confusion, you'll find that the psalmist began to worship and praise God right in the midst of those terrible circumstances. And that's where the power happens. I don't know how to word that. I'm, I, I fall so short of trying to articulate some of these things in the Bible. But that's, that's, where, that's where, as I said, worship meets pain. And it is a supernatural thing that takes place. It is so far beyond reading a self-help book. It's so far beyond listening to Tony Robbins' CDs. You know, pump yourself up. There's something supernatural that takes place when we praise and worship God in the midst of our pain. That's why we must never allow ourselves, ourselves to get to the place in life where we say, one day I'm going to worship him more. One day when things are better, I'm going to serve him more. No, you won't. You won't, and neither will I. It's today, right now. If you're on the top or you're on the bottom, start today, praising and worshiping God, regardless of what life is throwing at you. David begins to praise and worship God in the midst of those terrible circumstances, and he's, what he's doing is, listen, here, here's another key. He's reminding himself that God is still king over it all. See, battles and hardships and struggles and pain and fear and loss and doubt, confusion, betrayal, all those things. Man, I'm telling you, and what we see going on in the world now, I'm like up to here with it all. I'm just up to here. I just can't absorb much more of this. When we see those things taking place, what they can do is they can sneak into our heart and they can begin to convince us that God is no longer in control. And buddy, I'm telling you, when we've been convinced of that, we're going to fall apart. Because then we step in and think we have to try to control all the stuff going on around us. And that's an impossible job. The troubles of life can sometimes make us feel like our obstacles are insurmountable like our circumstances are hopeless. And when we feel overwhelmed by life's struggles, as David so often did, praise, 
Praise is the means by which God's sovereign rule is invited into our circumstances. Man, I want us to get this. Praise is the means by which God's sovereign rule is invited into our messy circumstances. Why? Why why does that happen? Because, listen, a large part of praise and worship is recalling God's mighty works. It's recounting his faithfulness. It's proclaiming his great power. And when we do that, we are, from our perspective, we're enthroning God once again as Lord and Master and ruler and king over all the troubled areas of our lives. Is this making sense? In the face of unruly circumstances or a fearful heart, oh, I've seen fear this year in people. Fear, wow, it's crippling, it's crushing, it's debilitating. In the face of horrible circumstances or a fearful heart, it's praise and worship that invites God to establish his rule over all the turmoil and suffering and danger and uncertainty and fear. And we see this all throughout the Psalms of David. And it's such a beautiful thing. It's such a beautiful thing to to reach that crossing point in the Psalms. And David just bursts out and goes, it's almost like he forgot what he was complaining about. He says, God, you are amazing. Your faithfulness endures forever your goodness, your long-suffering, the acts that you have done of old. He is always recounting God's acts in the past, your goodness, your provision, your faithfulness. And by the time he's done that, he's like, "Woo, I'm good to go, man. David says, enemies are surrounding me on every side, but you, Lord, are my strength and shield. He says, when my heart was broken within me, I remembered your goodness, O Lord. He says, when my foot was about to slip, The Lord upheld me with his mighty arm. And it just goes on and on. And what David is doing is the key. He's reminding himself of God's strength and power in his weakness. And as I said, he's inviting God into his troubled circumstances to rule over them because David knows he can't rule over them himself. That's the key to it all. And so let me wind this down. We can take that key, you and I, no matter who you are, we can take that key and we can use it to help us in the everyday situations of our lives. Do I need to name a few? How about that uncaring, ungodly boss of yours at work? Maybe you've got one of those. Boy, that's tough. How about those crushing marital problems? We've all had them. Don't lie to anybody. I've been married 32 years. I love my wife, but boy, we've had some we've had some humdingers. That's life, man. How about those debilitating financial concerns? How about that terrifying doctor's report? How exactly does worship and praise help us with those things? reminds us, worship and praise remind us that whatever may be happening on earth today, God rules over it all. And 
His eternal purpose has already been firmly established in heaven, and there is no one and no thing that can change that. We are secure today, and we're secure forever. So when our worship and praise exalt God above every other power, we're declaring his absolute authority over it all. And by doing that, we're inviting God's peace and assurance and victory and power into and over that present moment. Our worship to him refocuses our perspective of who he really is and who we really are. That's important. Reminds us of who's in charge. Our worship to him declares that he is king over today and he's king over all eternity. And folks, as I said earlier, with the turmoil this world is in right now, I think we could all benefit from a little more of that. So when you feel overwhelmed and overcome by worry and fear and uncertainty and doubt, discouragement, here are a few quick examples to get you started helping to realign your focus. And boy, there's a lot of these you can pursue on your own. Psalm 47, 8, God reigns over the nation God sits on his holy throne. Psalm 97, 9, For you, Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Psalm 113, 4, The Lord is exalted over all the nations. His glory is above the heavens. How easily do we slip into that foolish state of understanding when we make the mistake to click on the news, oh, man, and we see what's going on around the world, we think, oh, man, this guy here or her or, or this government or these people, they've taken over. They're in charge now. No, they're not. They're not. The president, the prime minister, the chancellor, the king, the queen, none of them are in charge. You understand? None of them. None of them have sovereignty over your life as a child of God. So don't let your heart fear. Don't fret when you see evil men rising up. Read Psalm 2. Jot that down. Read Psalm 2 sometime. Man, that is a beauty. Yeah, boy, the people of the earth conspire against God. They say, we'll break off his chains. We'll go our own way. And God, who sits enthroned in the heaven, laughs. So the next time that life makes you feel fearful and frantic and worried and concerned, do what the Psalms teach us to do. Lift God up to his rightful place of majesty and sovereignty. Don't go to self-help books. They're fine if they help you. That's fine. Buy one for gardening or fixing your car. That's great. Go to God's word for life and truth. Go to his word. The next time you're overwhelmed, don't try to finagle it and fiddle with it and figure it out. Begin to praise God. Begin to put him once again in your, in your sight as enthroned in his majesty on high and invite him to come in and rule over all your circumstances. Begin today to practice this in your life, church, and see what a difference it will make. I close with this, the very last verse of the book of Psalms wraps all this up with these words. Psalm 150, verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray.
Lord, I think uh, uh, a true confession, I'm sure, of every one of us here today who dearly love you is that honestly, we, we don't know how to worship. We've boiled worship down and filtered it down to just what we do on Sunday morning before and after the sermon. And we're missing out on so much. We're missing out on the power and the priority of worship. So starting today, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our spiritual eyes and help us to see worship in a way that we never have. Not as a way to get things from God, but but as a way for for us to remind ourselves that God is the one who rules over all. God is the one who is sovereignly in charge of all of our ups and downs. God is the one who will be faithful to us to the very end. I pray that in our best times, I pray that in our worst times, we would remember to worship you. We know that that worship will bless you and it will bless us. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. Of my heart, I want to see.